This morning, our text is from John chapter 5, which we find Jesus at this point in his life um, in the midst of increasing opposition, uh, in the midst of increasing controversy. And it reminds me of a quote by Rolf Barnard, who is at the beginning of your bulletin, that says, Jesus Christ disturbs everything he confronts. Jesus Christ disturbs everything he confronts. I'd ask you to stand with me as we hear from John chapter 5, and may we be redemptively disturbed this morning as we are confronted with Jesus and this narrative from John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May have a seat. Emily and I recently did a quick getaway to Miami. I'd been to Miami a couple times for work over the last couple years around this time of year and surprisingly became pretty smitten uh, with the city, at least in January and February for a few days. We had a great evening, um, one evening in the Midtown area called Wynwood. It's an arts district in Midtown Miami. And among uh, a, much, uh, a lot of different galleries, it's got one of the most fantastic and renowned uh, outdoor graffiti artwork galleries, um, definitely in the country, if not in the world. And it's really beautiful. And then it has these other uh, galleries that kind of flow into the street that are technically indoors, but they have these garage door type deals and they're open. It's just a beautiful area to walk around in an evening when it's 74 and breezy and looking at art after a great meal. It was just a great night. And we went into this one particular gallery by a pretty famous artist named Peter Tooney. 
And his art is pretty unique. It's definitely modern. Uh, candidly, it's some of the type of art that you do appreciate with regard to quality. And it also has, they also have prices um, next to the artwork. And you do just start to wonder objectively, somewhat as a side note, how these things are valued, uh, right? Like they're, they're objectively, I think, really beautiful and, and unique and, and creative. Um, but a four by six sign for 150000 you're kind of like, man, that's... It's amazing. Um, but one of those signs that was $150,000, um, he, he would put statements on them. And one of the statements that showed up on this sign, or, or this particular, not sign, this particular piece of artwork that looks like a sign. Um, and uh, th- this was on some other pieces as well, as well. It said, expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. I'd never heard that before. It immediately resonated with me to some degree, and I got it, right? Um, There wasn't a lot of nuance to that. Uh, Expectations are the blueprint for disappointment. I wonder how much that statement resonates with you. There's probably varying degrees of responses to that statement. Some of them are probably housed within you tend towards optimism or pessimism, Right? Are you a glass half empty type person? Or are you a glass half full type of person? I know different circumstances, different situations provoke different things within us. But I wonder, generally speaking, what is your disposition when it comes to expectations? Do you, in your heart of hearts, kind of have this sense of, yeah, that's right. Expectations really are the blueprint for disappointment. It seems that the older we get and the more we live in a broken world, the more we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, the more we realize we're not the way we're supposed to be, we definitely start to temper our expectations. Which on some level is good and right, and on another level, it leads us to where I'm afraid many of us live, whether we admit it or not, which is we live in a place of cynicism. I know cynicism seems astute. Cynicism seems keen. Uh, Cynicism is definitely self-protective in many ways. But the problem with cynicism is it cuts against the heart of the gospel. You see, because at the heart of the gospel is this thing called hope. And hope is not cynical. And Christian hope is not wishful thinking but it's a guaranteed assurance. And so while it's safer to approach life with not having expectations because they're a blueprint for disappointment, it's actually not very Christian to approach life in that way. Christians of all people have reason to hope. And John 5 is a passage about hope. Specifically, John 5 is a passage where I want us to see in an overarching way this morning that Jesus is on a mission to restore. Jesus is on a mission to heal. Jesus' MO, His specialization is restoration. He specializes in hope. He promises holistic healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, 
relationally. Isn't that what you want? If you allow yourselves to risk and to have courage, to actually hope for a moment, to not be so fearful of expectations, who would not say, yes, I'll take physical healing in my life and the lives of others that I love? Who would not say we will take spiritual healing or emotional healing or relational healing? Isn't that what we all hope for? Well, John 5 is a proclamation where Jesus says that he has come to bring this kind of healing. But here's the truth. Hoping for that hurts. It hurts to hope. And it's easier to cynically doubt. It's very easy for us, I think, the more even that we're in touch with our own hearts, the more we're in touch with the world, The more we read the paper, the more we intersect our lives with other people, it's very easy to move towards a place of despair and call it realism. But when we do that, I'm afraid that we downplay redemption. You see, here's the reality. We do, in the narrative of redemption, live prior to the new heavens and the new earth which is what the Bible talks about when all things are right, when God brings full redemption, recreation, and restoration. When the holy city of the New Jerusalem, we don't go up there, but the holy city of the New Jerusalem in Revelation comes down to us, and all is well. And so we live before that. And so it's very easy for us to conclude, well, that'll be great one day when Christ comes again and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, and we no longer have to live in despair. The problem with that is Christ is alive and reigning. And He did this thing that we'll reflect on in depth in a few weeks called resurrection. And so while we do live pre-new heavens, pre-new earth, all things being right, it's not as if nothing is right because Christ reigns. We live post-resurrection while we live in the tension of pre-new heavens, pre-new earth. And Christ here in His resurrected body at this moment sits at the right hand of God the Father on this continual mission of restoration. John 5, more specifically, shows us an offer of restoration a reluctance to restoration, and a responsibility of restoration. So Christ has come to bring restoration. We see more specifically that He offers restoration. We see that there is a reluctance to this restoration. And then we also see that this restoration comes with a responsibility. Let's look at this offer of restoration. And for us to understand the offer of restoration, let's go back to the narrative and understand the scene a little bit. This is a pool in Jerusalem My guess would be, I'm not going to ask for uh, hands to be raised. My guess would be that some of you in this room have been to Jerusalem. And in going to Jerusalem, my guess would be a tour guide or someone showed you where this pool was in Jerusalem. They even say today it could be seen where it was. This pool was infamous. It was called the Pool of Bethesda, and it was a pool of healing. Uh, Legend or myth said... Uh, tradition stated 
that this pool was a pool of healing and that occasionally angels would come and stir the waters. And if you had an ailment and could get into the water while the waters were being stirred, you would be healed. And so there were many people laying out by this pool, right? A little different uh, than the pools we lay out by in the summer. But these are people laying out by the pool waiting for the opportunity potentially of the waters to be stirred by the angels and then for people to be able to get into the water and to experience healing. So this pool, you can just imagine it, among other reasons that it did not look like pools that we lay out by. This pool uh, was um, peppered with lames and cripples and the sick and the needy. And Jesus goes right into that scene. One of the things we see is Jesus comes to offer restoration. We see something that is consistently true about Jesus throughout the Gospels and that Jesus had a magnetic pull to the crippled, to the lame, to the sick. In fact, he says repeatedly, I did not come uh, to, I came to seek and save the lost. I did not come for the well, but I came for the sick. He has a magnetic gravitational pull to those who are needy, to those who are lame, to those who are crippled, and he reaches out consistently to the down and out. And he initiates. Not only does he show up at this pool, specifically he goes over to this one man that arguably, potentially, was the worst of all of them. The text tells us that he had been an invalid for 38 years. And Christ goes right up to him. So Christ is drawn to this whole scene of needy people. And then specifically, Christ is drawn to this one person. And he goes up to him and he engages him. He looks at him, which dignifies him. He speaks to him, which puts him in relationship with each other. And he offers him healing. He offers him restoration. We'll talk more about the man's answer in a minute, but I'll just simply say this. He did not answer the question right. Uh, Or he did not answer the question in the way that you would assume he would answer the question. Or did he not answer the question in the way that you would want to probably answer the question But something else we see about Jesus and what he's doing by this offer of restoration is that he heals this man anyway. And among other things, we could pause here for a minute and realize that Christianity at the end of the day is not ultimately about getting the answer right. And we ought to say amen to that. doesn't mean that we ought not to try to know the best we can know. And to be as accurate as we can be about various things. But what we see throughout the Gospels and other situations, there are plenty of people who get the answer right and end up on the wrong side. And here, this man is lackluster at best, yet Jesus heals him anyway. You see, this offer of restoration speaks a lot to the character of Jesus. It also speaks to the power of of Jesus. This is yet again another example where Christ heals someone with a 38-year ailment simply with what? A word. Just a word. I love Luther's historic hymn where he says, one little word shall fell him. Talking about the ultimate enemy, Satan 
himself. But Christ here uses one little word to fell the enemy of being crippled. Just one word. That's all it took. And then he uses a word in the Greek that is often used for, guess what? The concept or the truth of resurrection. He says, get up. In a way, literally what Jesus says is, be resurrected. Take up your mat and walk. Before we move on to addressing and looking at the reluctance to restoration, as we've seen here, this offer of restoration, I want to say a brief word about the way in which we see Christ healing in the Gospels and the way we see Christ performing miracles and make at least brief mention of what that means to us today. Simply stated, miracles and healing among Jesus point to an ultimate, a more ultimate, I should say, reality. Miracles, and specifically the miracle of healing, points to Christ's authority. Furthermore, miracles were a foretaste of the great redemption. When Jesus performed a miracle, what he did was, it's as if he announced and gave an object lesson. This is the way things are supposed to be. Let me just show you. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no such thing as a cripple. Miracles also describe the future condition of men and women, and in fact, the whole human environment. What Christ promises us ultimately one day is shalom. And some of you would know that shalom is often referred to as peace, but more accurately, shalom refers to, this is an awesome concept, universal flourishing. Shalom is universal flourishing. And miracles attest to this concept and this idea of universal flourishing among people. They refer to cosmic redemption and to the holistic health and redemption that Christ is committed to. The last thing I'll say about miracles then and even now, regardless of where you fall on the theological spectrum with regard to healing and such, I feel confident and comfortable saying they are not normative today. Uh, These are not normative ways that God establishes authority. These are not normative ways in which God testifies to ultimate truth. He does so in other ways. So we see here in restoration, Christ is calling to restoration. He gives an offer of restoration, and this is where it gets pretty interesting for us this morning. I want us to look at this reluctance or resistance to restoration. You know we all have that, right? Like while we long to be restored and made right, candidly, we resist it and we're reluctant to be made right. I've told some of you before about an impactful experience that I had. My very first trip in New York, I was working with a historic um, shelter and street ministry called the Bowery Mission, uh, which used to not be in a really cool part of town. And now the way that New York has evolved, it's a super hip part of town. Uh, right up against and near Soho, but I was doing this traveling soup kitchen uh, with the Bowery Mission, and we would go to various parks, and I think the particular park that what I'm about to tell you took place in was Tompkins Square Park, and we go down there, and we have this these vans, and it's during the winter, and you pull out uh, these hot soup uh, carts, and you start to serve people, and people come from all around to eat, and as they sit there, you know, you seek to engage them 
and, you know, do, honestly, the best you can to be like Christ and dignifying and engaging and just engaging or entering into normal conversation. This particular day, we had an interesting opportunity. The director had told us, if a conversation progresses in such a way, and if you sense a certain amount of receptivity, both in listening and dialogue with a person, one of the things that we, that we have the opportunity is to offer someone a bed in our shelter. You see, their shelter, like most shelters, had a number of limited beds. But this shelter not only provided a bed, this is one of the most historic and successful shelters probably in the world uh, because of what they were able to do, not simply in giving people food and a place to sleep, but what they were able to offer people with regard to holistic healing, vocational training, addiction uh, therapy, um, other you know, uh, aspects to bring people more into what it means to be human. And they said, we have space. So if someone is interested, send them over and we'll dialogue further with them about it. And so I was pretty excited about this opportunity. I wasn't just going to thrust it on anybody, but I was hoping, you know, that I could say, hey, by the way, you know, they have room. This is part of the Bowery. Da, da, da. And I remember engaging in that with a number of people as there were really hundreds of people around that day and not one person would take me up on the offer of just having another conversation with the director of what it might mean to live a more full and whole life. Now, I know there are a lot of nuances, and I don't want to oversimplify all the complications that come with the brokenness of being homeless and hungry. I do know this, that their reluctance to want to experience that restoration reminded me of my own. And it probably reminds you of yours as well. Just because Christ offers restoration doesn't mean that we automatically want it. How does this man answer this poignant question that Christ asked him? Jesus asked him, did you get it? Do you want to be healed? Seems like a strange question, right? I mean, he hadn't walked in 38 years. The implication, like if I was this man... For one, being 38 years an invalid would make me even more cynical than I am. And so I would probably be prone to answer that question like, no, not really. Not a big deal. I'm just laying by this pool of healing. I haven't walked in 38 years. Do I want to be healed? What are you talking about? But I think Jesus does so with great intent. Of course, he could have just healed him. But he asked him. And how does the man respond? I think he responds like me and you. Um, I can't. Like, I, I can't get there. Like, the waters get stirred and I can't get in. And guess what? Furthermore, nobody will even take me. His response is one of excuse and one of blame. Hint, hint. So what he essentially says is, do you want to be healed? You know what he answers? I don't know. He had become so comfortably numb, presumably, with his sickness and his illness, that it had become his identity. That happens to us, too, doesn't it? We take these things that manifest in spiritual and internal sickness, which are called sin, and we own that brokenness in such a way that they become 
our old friends. It's almost as if they cease to be elements of brokenness or sin. And these are just our old friends that when Christ comes again, He will take them away from us and that'll be a glorious parting. But until He comes again, you know, this is just how it is. It is what it is, right? Problem. Jesus is on a mission of restoration. And who gives you or me the right to say what Christ can and cannot restore? How can you conclude there will not be healing? Let's even take a physical ailment. We can't, you, you know enough to know that you can't guarantee and, and promise and bank on the fact that physical healing will take place through a deep ailment that you have, but how do you know it won't? But then also internally, spiritually, with regard to our sin and brokenness, why do we take things in our lives that have been around so long that hey, have become old friends that we're just comfortable with them? There's this comfort in misery. This is where addicts get things right in a lot of ways, and 12-step groups have these what might come across as pithy statements, but oftentimes are very profound. One of the things they talk about is uh, living in addiction is this experience of living in hell, but at least knowing the street names. It's a living hell, but we're really comfortable here. And I feel like that's where probably this man was, and I definitely know it's where I'm drawn I concede this morning that there is a reluctance to wanting to be healed. And Christ not only asked this man, but I feel like Christ is offering us this morning this question. Do you want to be healed? You know what the answer is? Yes. You know how I know that? Because we lie beside a myriad of pools in our life looking for restoration and healing. The pool of money, right? One more zero behind my paycheck would heal me. One more new outfit, one pair of shoes, that'll that'll probably heal me. One more new friend group. That's probably what will bring heal. I'll I'll go for the, the pool of a better friend group. Or what about the pool of religion and morality? That that'll heal me. That that's that that seems like a promising pool of healing? Or what about the pool of intellectual knowledge? That pool will probably heal. The pool of relationships in general, or maybe more specifically, the pool of sex, that will be a pool that heals me. Or the pool of substance abuse, that'll be a pool that heals me until Christ comes again. The pool of other people's approval. The list could go on and on. Of course, we want to be healed. The question is, what methods of healing are we looking for? And the truth is, we're lying beside all these pools that can't bring healing. All they do is numb us further. And it makes us reluctant and to resist restoration. I'll say briefly, and this is a whole other sermon, and I'm not going to try to give it, 
Um, this man has a reluctance to restoration. The Pharisees in this passage have a flat-out resistance to restoration. Like, they hate this. They hate that Jesus is doing things like this. And furthermore, they hate that he's doing it on a day that they have deemed holy, that they have created 39 different rules that can't be broken. And they totally miss this unbelievable act of restoration and healing. And they're nitpicking at things that don't matter. It reminded me humorously um, of Christmas vacation, right? When Clark gets all the lights out and he, of course, goes through all these travails of getting them to actually work. And, he, and they finally work. And he gets the whole family out there. And everybody has something to say about, you know, this is amazing. This is great. And Clark gets to his dad. And you know what his dad says? The little lights aren't twinkling, Clark. And it's like that's what the Pharisees are doing. It's like this unbelievable thing has happened. And they're nitpicking about something. That for one, doesn't matter. And two, they're dead wrong about. I mean, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Just to be clear here, He can do whatever He wants on the Sabbath. So they resist that restoration too. Lastly, and just briefly, we've seen Christ offer restoration. We see that we have and we admit that we've got a reluctance to restoration. But very interesting in this story, it carries with it that there's a responsibility to restoration. Right? Did you notice that Jesus comes back to this man? So Jesus heals him. The Pharisees get all concerned about the lights not twinkling. And then this man goes to the temple and then Jesus seeks him back out. Like he's not finished with him. We could even just take that alone. Charles Spurgeon might preach a whole sermon on that one statement. That Jesus is not finished with him. He's not finished with you either. And he goes up to him and says, hey, I need to state something that is true. Grammatically, Jesus gives him an indicative. You are well. And then, as custom is in Scripture, Paul follows this pattern all the time. He gives him an indicative. Sin no more. He says, look, I've restored you, but I've restored you with a purpose. My restoration now has a responsibility that you have to carry. I will be with you. I will give you my grace. But let's just be real clear about something. I've offered you my grace. Now it's time for that grace that is within you to manifest its power. You ready? In holy living. Holy living will never merit God's grace. And that's where most of us go wrong. But God's grace empowers holy living. And that's what Jesus is telling him. Look, I have healed you with a purpose. You now have a responsibility. Go and sin no more. And then this real, you know, lighthearted thing happens after that so that nothing worse may happen to you. Every scholar I've read on this, and I've read extensively on this passage over the years, says that it is a direct implication in this particular situation where Jesus is saying this man's physical condition was connected, at least in part, to his sin. 
What does that mean? Not supposed to play around with sin. Read Psalm 32 and hear David describe what it's like to carry and to cover sin. He says it's like his bones are wasting away. However, at the same time, be cautious ever to declare to another person that it's because of their sin that something has happened. You do that, you're going to be as foolish as Job's friends. Even just a few chapters later in John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are walking by a blind man and the disciples errantly, like Job's friends, say, hey, what did he do? What did he do to become blind? And Jesus says, nothing, shut up. But in this case, he says, this man's sin is connected to his physical ailment. You can't conclude that about anybody else, but here's the kicker. It would probably be worth trying to discern whether that's true about you. Don't you dare go and declare to someone else that something in their life physically is ailing them because of their sin. But look really hard at our own lives and examine, is my sin affecting me in such a way that it's manifesting in ways even outside the explicitly spiritual realm? Christ offers restoration. We're reluctant to restoration. There's a responsibility for restoration. And I want to close with going back to this idea of expectations. What does it mean to walk with and to be befriended by and to follow a risen Savior who is on a mission of restoration? It has to mean that we have to think differently about what his work is in this world and in our lives. And I think it's summarized well by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He gives this great image, and we'll close on this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not that surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts deeply and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought he was going to make you into a nice little decent cottage, but instead, he's building a palace because he, come, he intends to come and live in it himself. Let me close this in prayer. Father, forgive us for having low expectations. Forgive us for our cynicism. Forgive us for not understanding hope. We pray that we would grab hold of the hope that you show us here in John chapter 5. We pray, Father, in your name, under your authority, that you would change us. We pray that we would be better men and women. We pray that we would stop sinning, not so that you will love us, but because you love us. We pray for stronger marriages. We pray for pure minds. We pray for healthy bodies. We pray against shame and guilt. We pray against sloth and laziness. We pray 
That we would take on the responsibility of restoration and that you would be glorified by it. Help us to understand fully how amazing your grace is. It's so amazing that it covers every sin we ever have committed, every sin we are committing, and every sin we ever will commit. That same grace also empowers us to live in truth a holy life. And we pray that you would do that in us and through us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.